Well, good morning. Morning to those of you here over in the, over in the link as well. Uh, good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Rich, and I primarily work with teenagers here at Grace Community, but every once in a while I have the opportunity to speak to you on a Sunday morning. So really excited for this opportunity, and I uh, love the uh, opportunity to serve you uh, by getting to uh, share uh, what God has uh, laid on my heart to, uh, to speak to us this morning. So it's going to be a good morning for us. Um, I'm one of those people that uh, grew up in church, I don't know uh, what your background is, but that's my background. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every special event, every time that the church doors were opened, I was there. My family, we were all there. But if I could just be honest with you, if I could just uh, share with you that I wasn't there Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every special event, every time that the doors were open, I wasn't there because I wanted to be there, if I can just be honest. I was there because if I wasn't, I was looked at as a bad Christian. If I wasn't there, I was looked at as a bad person. That was sort of the expectations that were placed upon uh, us, those of us that went to the church that, that I grew up in. Now, um, my church had a lot of rules growing up. Uh, if you grew up in church, maybe you can relate to this, may, maybe you can't, but this, again, was my background uh, growing up in church. Uh, no cards. You were not allowed to play cards, could not have cards, could not do anything like that, uh, because cards could lead to gambling. And so if you played cards, the logical next step is you're going to be addicted to gambling. You know, of course. Uh, so uh, you could not, could not do that. Uh, you could not uh, go watch movies. Couldn't go to a movie theater to watch a movie. You would not support a movie theater. Now, what I didn't understand is that we were allowed to rent the videos. That never made sense to me. Uh, we could get the videos, but we could not be seen at the theater. So, so no movies whatsoever. No rock music. Could not listen to secular music, could not listen to rock music, anything that had a driving beat to it, you were not allowed uh, to listen to. Even if it was contemporary Christian music, if it had a driving beat to it, you couldn't listen to it. Uh, whenever I was in middle school, in my hometown, uh, we had a Christian television station uh, that was, you know, a local TV station in, in, my, in my area, and there was a 30-minute Christian music video show called Light Music, and it was hosted by this guy, Tom Green. And so uh, it's a 30-minute show of, of Christian uh, music videos, you know. And so I, as a middle school student, I was in seventh grade, eighth grade, something like that, I, and I, I really enjoyed music, and, and, and I was so drawn to this. I was so drawn to watching these videos and seeing this music and listening to this music that one day the temptation just became so great for me. I was like, I am going to turn the sinful music video show on, the Christian music video. And so I turned it on, and I watched 30 minutes of Christian music videos. And I, I'm not joking you. I'm, I'm serious. I literally, after I was done, on my my knees before God. God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I watched the Christian music videos. I am so sorry. Please don't let me go to hell. I really, you know. And so I literally repented for watching Christian music videos because that was what was driven into me. You know, you could not watch those things. You could not listen to any music 
with a beat because if you did, you know, the next thing that happens, you start tapping the foot and then you start tapping the fingers. And then before you know it, your body's moving, you're doing all sorts of things. And then you're dancing and dancing was the ultimate evil. You know, you do not dance. That is like the worst possible thing that you could do. Like our church believed that you stay away from premarital sex because it could lead to dancing, you know, because it was just that bad, that bad. You know, you just do not do it. And so we had a lot of rules. My church had a lot of rules. I remember as a, I believe I was a freshman, um, freshman Penn State University. Um, I didn't go to college right after high school. I took a few years off. So I was a freshman Penn State University. I was 21 years old, 21 years old. And I'm at Penn State where I got my undergrad from. And I'm volunteering also with the teenagers in my home church. And so I'm volunteering with teenagers at my home church. And as a 21-year-old guy, I just thought for whatever reason, it would be cool to get an earring. And so 21 years old, I get an earring. Now, I don't wear an earring now because when you look like this, can only be so cool. So, you know, uh, so that's what, that's what's going. So I don't wear it now, but it's 21 years old. I thought that I needed to boost my coolness factor. And so I got an earring. And so I get this earring and I go home and I remember the first words my mom said to me, my mom looked at me and she was like, what are the people at church going to think? You know, that was her biggest worry, you know, that, that she, what are the people at church going to think that you got an earring? And so I remember going to church my very first Sunday after getting that earring. And so I walk into the church and seriously, you would have thought I shot the Pope or something like that. People were so upset at me. I mean, there were gasps, there were rolling of the eyes, there were heads shaking in disbelief. Old ladies are passing out. Rich, the guy, the kid that grew up in our church has an earring. They're getting the holy water, throwing it on me, casting out the demons, you know, all sorts of stuff is going on. And I literally had, I am not joking, I had a lady come up to me, get in my face, And she said this, she was like, how can you expect to work with teenagers to point them to God when you got an earring? And I'm like, lady, have you seen the teenagers in our church? You know, they got rings, places you don't want to know about, you know? And so like, it's just all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, was going on. And so I'm thankful, so thankful not to be in that type of, of environment today where there's just a ton of rules, you know, just weighing you down, just bear, you know, just beating on you and just weighing you down. But I think that today, even today, we have a tendency to think that God's approval is reserved for the rule followers, We have a tendency to think that God's approval is reserved for the rule followers. If you obey, you're in with God. If you disobey, you're out. And the Ten Commandments, the series that we're starting today, the Ten Commandments are often the thing that are pointed to as proof that God is all about rules. We ought, people will often point to them and say, yep, God's about rules. You see, Ten Commandments. And, and I don't know if you're like me, even, even me, like what I think when I hear the Ten Commandments, again, just being honest, the first thing that comes to my mind, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear Ten Commandments is thou shalt not. You know, it's, it's, it's just the natural thing that pops into my mind first. Thou shalt not. And it gives the impression that God is, you know, the big policeman in the sky just waiting for you to get out of line so he can just crack you back in and discipline you and get on your case and all that kind of stuff. And and I guess what I want to try to show us this morning 
one of the things I hope that we get this morning is, is that's not the case. I really don't believe that's the case. Does God have standards for us to follow? Yes. Does God set up guidelines for us to go by? Yes. When you open the Bible, are there do's and do nots? Yes, absolutely. But what I want us to see this morning, what I want us to understand is this, as we begin looking at the Ten Commandments, is that God didn't give his people the Ten Commandments to follow to make them his people. He gave them the Ten Commandments to follow because they were his people. There's a big difference between those two things. And we're just going to try to tear that apart this morning and look at it for a little bit and, uh, and just see what that means uh, for our lives today. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you need a Bible... You can just put up your hand and an usher will be around. They'll give you a Bible that you can take home with you if you need to take that home. But Exodus chapter 20, it's in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Old Testament. You'll just see Genesis, and then the very next book is Exodus. And it's Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read the first two verses. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. When you find it, could you go ahead and stand over in the link as well? When you find uh, that uh, passage, go ahead and stand. And uh, we're going to honor God and just read his word out loud together right now. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, thanks. You can go ahead and and have a seat. We're going to stop right there. Because what I want to do is explain something from those two verses that is really, really important for us to understand as we begin to set the stage, set the background for the Ten Commandments. And there's one word that I want us to be able to look at, and that one word is the word your. God said, I am the Lord, your God. The word your implies an existing relationship. The word your implies that there is some type of of personal relationship that is happening. If I say to my wife, Carol, if I would talk to her and I would say, Carol, I am a husband. That is a true statement, but it's not very personal. But whenever I sit face to face with my wife and I look her in the eyes and I say, Carol, I am your husband. That's personal. There's a level of intimacy that's involved when I say that statement that I would not have with with anybody else. And so when God said, I am the Lord, your God, could he simply have said, I am the Lord? Yes. And that would have been a very true statement. But when he said, I am the Lord, your God, there's, there's the implication that there is a personal intimate relationship that is involved there. And I guess one of the things I hope that we see this morning is that God wants to be personally involved in your life. God is not the God who is up in heaven being very distant, 
arms folded, hands off, saying, you just do whatever you want to do. That is not God. God is not the type of God who would be, you know, the dad that comes home from work and turns on SportsCenter and just watches SportsCenter and is completely disengaged with his kids emotionally and disengaged with his wife emotionally. That is not God. God is the dad who comes home from work and then rolls around on the floor with his kids, who is involved intimately and who is involved personally with his kids. That is what God is because God longs to, to, to be active in your life. He longs for that relationship with you. He wants you to know him more than anything else. Does God want you to have healing in your life from the past? Yes, but more than that, God, I believe, wants you to know the healer. Does God want you to be free of bondage in your life? Absolutely. But more than that, I believe God wants you to know the bondage breaker. Does God want you to have joy in your life? Absolutely. But more than that, I believe God wants you to know the giver of joy. Does God want you to have power in your life? He does. But more than you having power in your life, God wants you to know the source of that power. God, whenever he says, I am the Lord, your God, he is saying, I am intimately involved with you. There is a relationship that is going on. So the natural question is this, when did this relationship start? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we're going to find out. Genesis chapter 12. Why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 12, just one book back. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to find out where this relationship between God and his people started. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says this says, the Lord had said to Abram, or a man by the name of Abraham. God later changed his name to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all Peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this right there, Genesis chapter 12, is where the relationship begins, where the relationship is established. God, for reasons that are really unknown to us, chooses a guy by the name of Abraham. And he says, Abraham, from this point on, you are in. From this point on, you are on my team. And then look at everything that God promises to Abraham. This is what God promises him. He says, imagine if God spoke to you and said, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what God said. He said, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Anybody who curses you, I will curse all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, did Abraham do anything to deserve that? No. 
Abraham did nothing to deserve that favor from God. I mean, you read the first chapters of Genesis, what you see are you see creation, you see the fall, you see the flood, you see the Tower of Babel, you see some family trees, some genealogies, and then bam, God out of nowhere just chooses this guy, Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. He makes a commitment, a promise. And that promise was unconditional. It was unconditional. It wasn't based on what Abraham did or didn't do. The faithfulness of God's promise had nothing to do with Abraham. It had everything to do with God. So God promises these blessings to Abraham and his descendants. The descendants of Abraham are the Jewish people, the the, the nation of Israel. But God also says something else. He says, Abraham, this is what I'm giving you. This is the blessing that I'm giving you and your descendants, but it's not going to happen right away. This is what's going to happen. If you just turn over to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. And again, what I want us to understand is we are setting up the stage for the Ten Commandments. This is... This is the background that sets the stage for the context of where the Ten Commandments came from. And so God says this in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. The Bible says this. It says, As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants, the descendants that just a couple chapters ago I promised to bless, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, all peoples will be blessed through you. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And so God is telling Abraham, he's saying, Abraham, my promise is going to be true, but there are going to be some dark times first. There are going to be some dark times that happen, but my promise will remain true. And so he tells this to Abraham, and sure enough, what God says comes true. Because what you can find out when you skip over to the end of Genesis, you can read that the descendants of Abraham ended up in the nation of Egypt, the country of Egypt. And so you can read all about that in the last few chapters of Genesis and find out how they ended up in the country of Egypt. And then in Exodus chapter 1, you can find out how they became slaves in the country of Egypt. And so they became slaves and they were slaves for 400 years. Now I just want you to stop for one second and just think about that. Think about what it would be like to be in slavery for 400 years. 400 years. They had no land. They had no property. They had no rights. It was 400 years of oppression. And for 400 years, God was quiet. Nothing. For 400 years. I've given us four seconds of silence. And sometimes four seconds seems a little awkward. We're always thinking, when's he going to start talking? What's he going to say? Imagine 400 years of that. Nothing from God. 
And so they may have heard stories about this guy, Abraham. They may have heard the name God. But anything that they heard, probably what's going on in their mind is they're thinking, is he really even there? Is it even true? The stories that we've heard, because whatever stories there were that talked about God, we are in slavery. And whatever promise God made, it doesn't seem like he's going to come through on his promise. It seemed like God didn't care. But what I want you to understand, again, is keep in mind, this captivity did not take God by surprise. God said this was going to happen. He told Abraham, hey, Abraham, this is what's going to happen. Your people are going to be in slavery for 400 years. But when it's over, I am going to put myself on display. And trust me, I will keep my promise. I always do. So the important fact that I want us to see is when we finally get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, right when God says, I am the Lord, your God. The important fact I want us to know is that the relationship had been established long before the rules were made. The relationship that God established for his people was made long before God established the rules for his people. So keep that in mind. And then God says this. God says in verse 2, I I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God first says, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God. And then he says this. This is what I have done. I have set you free from slavery from Egypt. And a really cool pattern, if you ever want to just kind of look at the pattern that God has in the Bible, is this. God will often, God will often, before he does something great in the lives of people, before he moves in the lives of people, he will often begin with the reminder first of who he is, and then second of what he has done. It's a really cool pattern that you can see that when you look at God beginning to move in the hearts of people, God beginning to move in the lives of people, God setting the stage for something amazing to happen, God often starts it by saying, this is who I am, this is what I have done, that's why you can trust me. That's the pattern that God sets in the Bible because... I really believe that God knows the most powerful driving force we could ever have in our lives is a certainty that he is who he says he is and that he does what he says he will do. That the most powerful, motivating, driving force that we could ever have to live for God, to do something for God, is that we know that God is always who he is says he is and that he will always do what he says he will do. There is a big, big difference between believing in God and actually believing God. Big difference. Many of us in here can honestly say, yeah, I believe in God. Absolutely believe in God. But how many of us can say that I believe God? That I believe him, that I take him at his word, that when he says this is who he is, 
I trust that's who he is no matter what's going on in my life. And when he says, this is what I do, I trust that that's what he will do no matter what is going on in my life. There is a big difference between believing in God and actually believing God. How, um, just think about it. How would your life look different if you totally believed God? What would be different in your life if you totally believed God? How would you act? What fears would you no longer have? What places would you no longer go? How would your life look differently if you, if you didn't just simply believe in God, but you really believed him, that you took him at his word? And so I just want you to just think about this. This God who the Jewish people hadn't heard from in 400 years. They knew almost nothing about him. This God shows up on the scene and he says, I haven't forgotten about you. My promise is as true today as it was centuries ago when I made it to Abraham. And to show you that, I am going to put myself on display and I am going to set you free from slavery. And so God then does that in spectacular fashion. And that's what I love about God. God doesn't mind being put on the spot. God says, you want to put me on the spot? Okay, let me show you what I can do. And then he just shows off. He just sets them free from slavery in spectacular ways. Something really interesting to, to, to realize is the Egyptian culture believed in many gods. And so they had a god for virtually every aspect, every area of their life. And they believed in many gods, gods that controlled specific things or specific regions. So they had, you know, like a sun god or a moon god or, or the Nile River god. They just had gods for virtually every aspect of life. So when God sets his people free from slavery, what does he do? He takes the Egyptian gods and he totally embarrasses them through the plagues. It's just, it's, it's honestly kind of funny. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile River. And so what does God do? God totally embarrasses the Nile River God. He turns the, the, the Nile River to blood. The Egyptians worship the sun. And so what does God do? It was one of the plagues. He blocks out the light of the sun. The Egyptians worshiped frogs. So what does God do? God says, you like frogs? Here you go. He just covers their land in frogs. And so one after another, after another, after another, through the 10 plagues, God just totally embarrasses the so-called gods of Egypt until he finally sets his people completely free from slavery with plague after plague and with the parting of the Red Sea. Now, again, what did they do to deserve this attention from God? What did they do to deserve this attention from God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. When God set them free from Egypt, he was reestablishing an important fact for his people. And that fact is this, you're not here to get in with me. You're here because you're in with me. You're not here to establish a relationship with me. You're here because I have already established the relationship. And so it's with this background, with this understanding, that three months after the plagues, three months after the parting of the Red Sea, that Moses takes 
his people to Mount Sinai. And Moses climbs Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments. And he's receiving these commandments with the understanding that following them doesn't establish the relationship. You follow them because of the relationship. The Ten Commandments were not given as a condition of God's love and approval. They were given because of God's love and approval. It's what any good parent does. I make rules for my kids. I don't make rules for your kids. If you would ever come to me and say, Rich, I have a list of rules for your kids, I would say, let me tell you what you can do with that list. I don't make rules for your kids. I make them for my kids. I set the rules for my kids because they're my kids. They don't become my kids when they follow the rules. They, I give them the rules because they're my kids. And it's what God does. God sets the rules for his kids in the context of a relationship that he initiated with them. And they did nothing to deserve it. They did nothing to deserve that relationship. All they had to do was trust God. They had to believe God. Not just believe in him, but believe God. Believe that he is who he says he is, that God will do what he says he will do. Every relationship that we have begins and ends with trust. And our trust will always lead to obedience. Our trust will always lead to obedience. If our motivation for obedience to the rules is anything other than love, devotion, and trust in God, we are totally missing the point of the rules. The rules are about trusting that God knows what's best for our lives. The rules are about trusting that God, the creator of life, has given us these things not to weigh us down in bondage, but to set us, to give us freedom, to set us free. The rules are about believing that God knows what's best for our lives. If, the, if, if our regulations replace the relationship with God, what has happened is we've stepped into legalism. If our performance replaces our passion for God, what has happened is we've stepped into legalism. If our motivation for obedience is anything other than love, devotion, and trust in God, then we are totally missing the point of obedience. Our obedience shows that we trust because trust always leads to obedience. Way back when God chose Abraham, the Bible says that Abraham believed God And it was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible doesn't say that Abraham did this or did that, that he did one act after another or anything like that. The Bible simply says that Abraham believed God and it was his belief that was credited to him as righteousness. He simply believed. He trusted. And trust will always lead to obedience. He believed God. His belief led to his trust, and his trust led to his obedience. That was credited to him as righteousness. That's what God said is, yes, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I desire from you. So what does that mean today? 
What does that mean for us today as we sit here uh, right now? How can we bring all of that home uh, right now? I think that it's exciting for us. I think that this has a powerful message for us today because what it means today is that we don't have to have our life together before we come to God. That is good news. We do not have to have our act together. We don't have to have everything right. We don't have to have everything good in our life before we come to God. The context of the Ten Commandments makes it clear that before God wants you to follow the rules, he wants you to be in a relationship with him. And a relationship with God starts by trusting him. You trust that he knows what's best. You trust that he knows what's right. You trust that he knows how to establish a relationship with himself better than we know how to establish a relationship with him. And it's your trust that will lead to your obedience. And even when you look at the very first commandment, the very first commandment in verse 3, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The very first commandment, the one that is, that is you know, I, I guess important enough that God said, I want you to know this first. This is the first one that I am given you. This is what he said. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Another way to say it is you shall have no other gods in addition to me. And so that very first commandment is literally all about trust. I mean, you keep in mind that the Israelites, the Jewish people, had just spent, whenever they received the Ten Commandments, they had just spent 400 years in a land that had many gods. They had just spent 400 years in a country that had a god for virtually every aspect of life. And each god represented a different part of life. And so it was common to worship many gods in order to get the maximum number of blessings in your life. That was, that was common. That's what people did. And so when God told his people to worship and believe in him, honestly, that was easy for them. When God said, worship and believe in me, that was not difficult for them. He was just one more God that they could add to the list. But when he said, you shall have no other gods before me, when he said, you shall have no other gods in addition to me, that was a revolutionary concept for them at the time. That was revolutionary for them because God is in essence telling his people, I am not here to be a God. I am not here to be a part of your list. I'm not even here to be at the top of your list. I'm here to be your list. I am your list. Do not have any other gods in addition to me. Why? You don't need any. Whatever your issue, whatever your need, God is saying, I and I alone am the one to meet it. God has created each of us. God has created you. God has created me in such a way that he alone is fitted for our deepest needs. And the void that God created in our lives will demand our attention. Whether we realize it or not, whether we believe it or not, we look desperately for something to satisfy us. 
And so we want to devote ourselves to something. Our craving to be filled is so strong that the moment we find something or someone that temporarily seems to meet our need, we feel an overwhelming temptation to devote ourselves to it. That's how we come up with lists. This worked at one time. That worked at one time. Let me add that to the list. Let me add this to the list. Oh, that seems to really work. Oh, I really like how that makes me feel. You add that to the list. You add that to the list. And so we feel this overwhelming desire once we find something that we think works to devote ourselves to it. There's a story uh, in the Old Testament about a young boy whose name was Samuel. He's a, he's a boy that was dedicated to God as a baby. And as a baby, he was placed in the temple of God to live. And so Samuel, you know, a few years passed by. He's, he's just a young boy now at the time. And so Samuel works and he lives in the temple with this man named Eli. And Eli was the high priest in the temple at the time. One night, you can read the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3. One night, Samuel is sleeping and he hears a voice calling out his name. So he's in his room and he hears a voice call out his name and says, Samuel, Samuel. So Samuel gets up out of bed and he goes into Eli's room because it's just him and Eli there. And so he goes into Eli's room and he says, Eli, I heard you call my name. What did you want? And Eli's like, I didn't call your name. What are you talking about? Go back to bed. And so um, confused, Samuel goes back to his bed. The next night, we're told the very same thing happens. Samuel hears someone call his name. It's Samuel. Samuel. And so Samuel wakes up. He gets out of bed and he goes into Eli's room. He says, Eli, I heard you call my name. Is everything okay? What do you need? What's going on? And Eli's, you know, wiping the stuff out of his eyes. He's saying, Samuel, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't call your name. Go back to bed. And so Samuel, confused, goes back to his room and he goes back to his bed. The very next night, on the third night, the same thing happens. Samuel hears someone call his name. And so it's like, Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up out of bed and he goes into Eli's room. He's like, Eli, I am hearing you call my name. What is going on? And by this time, Eli catches on to what's happening. Eli understands what is going on. He realizes what's happening. And so he tells Samuel, he says this. He says, Samuel, the next time you hear that voice... Just stay in your room and say, here I am. Because it's God that is calling out to you. It's God who is calling your name. And so the very next night, God comes into Samuel's room and he calls out his name again. And he says, Samuel, Samuel. And this time, Samuel gets up and he says, here I am. Speak for your servant is listening. Samuel presents himself to God, everything he is, all he has. And from that day on, God becomes his list. From that day on, he enters into a no additional God's relationship with God. God becomes the list. And as I think about that story, I think that story is such an amazing picture of often what, what happens in my life way too often. Because sometimes this is a picture of my life. I don't know if this is a picture of your life. This is what often goes on with me. Sometimes I sit on the couch at night and I feel bored. And as I'm sitting on the couch at night feeling bored, I say to myself, I have a great idea. 
I am going to go get a snack. And so I get off the couch, and then I go into the kitchen, and I open up the refrigerator, and I look for a snack, and I'm searching through the fridge, and I don't see anything, so I shut the door, and I'm like, oh, the cabinet. And so then I go to the cabinet, and I open up the cabinet, and I'm searching through everything, and I can't find a snack, and so I leave the kitchen frustrated because I couldn't find what I was looking for. And so I go back to the couch, and I sit down. Ten minutes later, I think to myself, I'm going to go get a snack. And so I get up off the couch, I go into the kitchen, and I open up the fridge, and I'm looking through the refrigerator, and I can't find anything, shut the door, and I'm like, oh, the cabinet. So I go to the cabinet, and I open up the cabinet, I'm looking through the cabinet, I don't see anything, and I get frustrated again, and I shut the cabinet doors, and I go back to the living room frustrated because I didn't find what I was looking for. And then 15 minutes later, I get another great idea. I'm going to go get a snack. And so I do the same thing over again. I go into the kitchen. I open up the fridge, look around, don't see anything, thinking that something is going to change, thinking that magically the snack fairies have appeared in my kitchen and are going to put something there that wasn't there just minutes before, that those double-stuffed Oreos that I love so much are going to be there, and then I'm going to find them, and I'm going to get them. And then, oh, by the way, am I hungry? No, not at all. I'm just bored. Or maybe it looks like this for you. Maybe you're sitting on the couch and you have the remote control and you're just looking for something and you're flipping through the channels and you go through a hundred channels and you just don't see anything. And so what do you do? You go through them again. You just flip the channels and you're going through them just thinking that something is going to be different, that something is going to change. And I guess what I want you to hear from that really silly illustration is this. What I want us to see is that if the fridge and the cabinet could get together with the remote control, what they would tell you is this. It wasn't me who called you. I am not what you're looking for. It's not me who has called your name. There's a hunger in your soul, but you are coming to the wrong thing. The reason we go to the wrong things in our life is simply because Truth be known, we don't trust God. Can give every excuse that you want, but it always comes back to trusting God. The reason we go to the wrong things is because we don't trust God. He is not the list. The reason we look for something in addition to God is because we simply don't believe that he's enough. We can say that we believe in God... But truth be known, we don't believe God is really going to give us what we need in our lives. It's kind of like this. I mean, think about inheriting the entire Bill Gates fortune. So you have just inherited the entire Bill Gates fortune. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, $50 billion. You can't even comprehend that. $50 billion. You have just inherited the entire Bill Gates fortune. And it would be like you saying this. You saying, I have $50 billion and all I need is $50 billion and, and this now gene. I have $50 billion and this now gene. I am set. I am happy. This is all I need. It's ridiculous because you have $50 billion. What else could you possibly need? What is a silly Nalgene going to give you? And we do that all of the time and spiritually in our relationship with God. God says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, My divine power has given you everything that you need for life. 
everything, not just something, not just a little bit, not just maybe enough to fill you slightly. God says, I have given you everything that you need for life and for godliness. Do you believe it? Because if you look at your life and you can see in your life that you have a list, a list of something here, something there, something there, something here. And God may even be on that list. But what I want you to know, God doesn't want to be a part of your list. God does not even want to be at the top of your list. God wants to be your list. The only thing. And it's all about trust. Some of you have been going back to those dysfunctional relationships over and over and over again, and the reason is because you just don't trust God. Some of you, you know, you go back to alcohol, you go back to partying on the weekend, you go to sex, you go to pornography, whatever it is, and the reason is because you don't believe God. You don't believe that he is all that you need. Some of you think that more money is the answer, so you work your butt off and you're putting in all these hours and you're thinking, if I can just get more, just get more, just get more, get a higher position at work, just make myself look better, then it's all good. And you keep going back to that. And the reason you keep going back to that is because you don't trust God. You don't trust that he's enough. And the reason you feel so empty on the inside is because those things keep saying to you, it's not me who has called you. I am not what you were looking for. Until we trust that God is enough, until we trust that he is all that we need, we will always have a list. And we will always add something else to it. We will always look for something else. God does not want to be a part of your list. God does not even want to be at the top of your list. God wants to be the list. God wants to be the one that you go to only. And I don't know where you're at today, those of you here in the main, those of you over in the link, maybe today you're thinking to yourself, I have a list, and it's a long list. I have a lot of things that I run to. And uh, if that's you, I guess what I want you to know is that that's not God's desire for you. And the reason why you can have a relationship with God and still feel like unsatisfied, and the reason that you can have a relationship with God and still feel very discontent is because a relationship with God was not meant to have a list. A relationship with God was meant to be the list. And so maybe today you, you have your list and you're going to other things and maybe today is the day that you just get rid of it. And I don't know what that could look like for you. Maybe you're here in the main, you're over in the link. You know, we're going to sing a song here in response to God. And I guess what I want you to do, however you do it, is, is respond. To hear God speak to you, to allow him to speak into your heart and to point out your list and to say, God, get rid of this. God, I give you that. God, you are all that I need. All I need is you. And so you can do that in your seats. 
You can do that here in the main or over the link just by coming up front and kneeling down and just re- repenting. And, and, you know, people will pray over you. People will sing over you. It, however you want it to look, the important thing is, is that you respond, that you get rid of the list and you make God the list because it's all about believing him and trusting him enough to say, God, you are everything I need. God, we just offer this time to you. And God, I, man, our list can get so long. And uh, God, we run to so much and there's so much emptiness that we often feel. And God, what I pray is that today will be the day that people here, here in the main, over in the link, wherever it may be, God, that, that we respond to you and we just say, God, I want to enter into a you're the list type of relationship that everything else I lay before you and then I offer it to you and surrender and I want today to be the day that I have no additional gods that you are it and I pray this all in Jesus name